0: Check one, check one, two, three. Hey, everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. All right, my guest today is an Atlanta, Georgia-based production sound mixer and boom-op. Please welcome Rob Disner.
1: Hey, hey. Well you made me sound like I know what I'm doing.
0: (laughs) Welcome, Rob.
1: They'll they'll find out soon enough I don't. (laughs)
0: All right, Rob, we always start the show when you're working as a production sound mixer on set, tell us what's in your audio kit. So just give us a rundown of your mixer, your recorder, preferred mics, and everything in between.
1: All right. I am running the uh, 633, which just became obsolete last week. They've replaced it with the 833. They didn't even do a 733, just went right to the 833. But uh, I love that machine. Matter of fact, I'm running a backup of this right now on it. And it's on my backup machine. So I've got two of those. And I always figure if I'm in the field and something goes down, I just want the same exact machine just to swap it out. I don't want to start looking for batteries and different cables and adapters, you know. And thankfully, knock on wood, I'm gonna do it right now. I never had a problem. The machine's been perfect, so. So the 633 is the main recorder. Just uh, four 11s. I've got five 411s in the bag. And the boom, and there goes your six channels right there. I love the Sankin CS3e. e use that a lot. I've also been a fan for a long time of the Audio-Technica mics, which, uh, you know, have kind of been passed over. But they're good-sounding mics. I've got a short shotgun with a hyper and a just a regular cardioid capsule that I can uh, swap out in a longer shotgun, the 4073. And they're cheap, and they sound fine. And they're a black mic, and they look like everybody else's black mic. So, you know, nobody, uh, you know, even looks twice at it. But the Sankin's probably my main mic. And uh, other than that, hops, I'm still using uh, G4s, upgraded from the old G3s. But I've got the G4s that put out uh, 50 milliwatts, and they really work great for hops. They work awful for uh, radio mics you would want to put on a person. But uh, as far as hops, as long as they're not, you know, stuck on somebody, they seem to do fine.
0: All right. What lav mics do you like to use?
1: I've been using uh, B3s and B6s. Uh, I tend to economize when I can. I've got a couple Cost 11s But uh, I've been fine with the countrymen. I don't do a lot of scripted stuff. I think that B3s sound fine. I beat them up pretty good, and uh, I haven't messed one up yet. All right. And what timecode boxes do you like? I went to the Tentacles a little while ago, and just because it's so nice to have the Bluetooth and be able to look at it on your phone, you know, change frame rates and uh, all the stuff you can do just by having control right there in your hand. And I've got a couple uh, Denikey SP3s, too. Uh, If I happen to come across a cable that, I don't have for the tentacle, then I'll pull out the older ones, and between the two, I usually have enough cables to interface with whatever's out there.
0: All right, and uh, what headphones do you usually use?
1: I have been using the uh, old Sony's, the whatever seventy-five oh sixes, probably for the last thirty years, <laughs> and I love the fact that they were ninety-nine dollars in the nineties, and they're still ninety-nine dollars now. There's absolutely no difference in price in the product, and I just know them well. I know a lot of people have gone to in-ear and all that kind of stuff. I'm all about not spending, you know, $1,000 on something if I've got something that costs $99, and it does the job.
0: Now, when the ear pads start to kind of fall apart, what do you usually do to, to fix those?
1: Uh, I use the softies. use those for a long time. So that usually cuts down on that. And the softies get pretty gross, so you just swap them out, and uh, you're good to go. And you get a new color.
0: <laughs> That's true. So, the, the Garfield softies you like? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I got those on right now. There you go. And uh, what bag do you put all that in?
1: I have the uh, Stingray Small, which seems to fit everything well enough. I've got a BDS and five uh, 411s, 633. I'm using a uh, super uh, vintage Comtech uh, M72 transmitter. And uh, so far, it's been working fine for IFBs. The transmitters seem to hold up pretty well. The old Comtech receivers evolve at the dust. So I'm using uh, PR-175s, which you don't see a lot, but they're nice. They're uh, auto-sensing, so you just plug them in. It finds a frequency, and, and you're good to go.
0: Oh, Nice. Well, you do a lot of boom work, so tell us a little bit about your routine. When you arrive on set, kind of walk us through, say, on a new production.
1: I did a lot of boom work, and uh, I've kind of gotten away from that now. I'm a regular A1 over at Turner, and they book me a couple weeks a month sometimes now. So it's kind of cut down on how much boom I can do for other people. And uh, so I'll go in and day play and do a day here and there now versus, you know, doing a whole show like I was doing a couple years ago. But uh, I think the best thing to do is just to, you know, introduce yourself, shake hands with everybody. You know you're going to need favors from them later on. You know you're going to piss off someone, you know, in the camera department and uh, break the frame or, you know, get in the way or whatever or knock somebody in the head with the boom. (laughs) So uh, you try to be as nice as you can in the beginning. And then, you know, hopefully uh, you can cash in those favors later on. But, uh, you know, the boom operator's job today is just basically to be the eyes and ears for the mixer. I mean, you're just glued to the set. You know, there's no running to the trailers to go mic somebody anymore. You know, that's totally got to be the job of the uh, utility because you just can't walk away or you're going to miss something. I did uh, Baywatch. They always had three cameras and one's on a crane and one's hidden in the boat and, you know, one's who knows where. So uh, you, you just can't walk away or you're going to, you know, be you know out of the loop.
0: All right. Yeah. Speaking of Baywatch, how was that? I mean, you've got a bunch of people in bathing suits and shirtless. How was how the micing situation in that?
1: We actually replaced the first crew. And I don't know what happened with them. Uh, there was some issue and they ended up uh, about halfway through the show leaving for another show. And they did the bulk of the stuff on the beach. So by the time we got there, I think we did about a week on the beach. And then the rest of it was all interiors and things with, uh, you know, people wearing clothing. So uh, we didn't have to deal with a whole lot of that. Uh, A lot of it was just boom, you know. If The Rock's not wearing any uh, shirt or whatever, then, you know, he's not getting a mic. There was no big secret. Uh, The girls could get a mic. They uh, would sew a pouch into the back of the bikini or whatever. So they thought about it ahead of time. You had somewhere to put the transmitter and, you know, you just stick a lob in there. But for the guys that were shirtless, yeah, they just didn't have a mic.
0: Well, how did you set up your communication with your mixer usually?
1: You know, you hope that the mixer will let you kind of have free reign on the set and kind of run that side of things. And they can concentrate on, you know, sitting in the chair and drinking coffee and (laughs) keeping up with the football scores and all that kind of stuff. So hopefully when you work with someone for a while, they know how you work and they'll trust you to make decisions about, you know, whether you need a plant or, you know, where you need to be, or if you need to call on a second boom or, or that kind of, you know, that kind of thing. I do a lot of day playing now. So it's kind of a different deal. A lot of times I don't know the mixer or maybe I know them, but I haven't worked with them before. So uh, I'll usually just kind of talk to the boom operator who I'm replacing and find out what the vibe is and what they're doing and not try to you know, reinvent the wheel. Yesterday, you know, when I boomed, I just used the boom that was already set up there. I didn't bring in my own stuff and uh, it's just easier. You know, the wireless is already dialed in, it's already at the right level, it's already mounted on the pole. You know, everyone's got a different quick release now. I mean, you have to like pull apart a whole thing to go use your, you know, pole on a show like that. So, it's almost not worth it if they got something set up already.
0: All right. Can you talk about what you did last night working?
1: Uh, actually, Last night, actually, I was doing Utility. (laughs) The night before, I was doing Boom. And I replaced a Boom operator on a new Netflix show, which is untitled at the moment. And uh, I'm sure I signed an NDA and said I wouldn't talk about it. But it doesn't matter because I don't know what it is anyway. So (laughs) So I boomed a night. And then the mixer just had twins. So the mixer wanted the day off. So we did a little shuffling around. The utility became the mixer. The old boom operator uh, came back, and then I did utility. And I don't do that a whole bunch because I'm pretty lazy. <laughs> you know, utility is the worst rate on set, and they work four times as hard as anyone else. You know, boom is really a, a great gig. Besides the physical, you know, challenges and the political challenges and everything else you go through, but uh, you know, boom, you're just you're booming. You don't have to deal with all the other stuff that those guys have to deal with, the paperwork and, you know, doing an inventory and wiring everybody and, you know, every, everything else they got to deal with. It's a tough job.
0: All right. Now, you also worked on Caffeine and Octane. It's a car show on the NBC Sports Network. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: It's recorded as, uh, as the show's happening. We go in and uh, it's just one day a month. And uh, you do one episode every day that they have a car show. Thankfully, uh, it's in Dunwoody here in Georgia. And I'm in Dunwoody here in Georgia. So it's automatically my favorite show because it's one exit up the freeway. So I can just roll in there and, uh, you know, it's 10 minutes from the house. So we show up at this car show, which is called Caffeine and Octane. And I think it's the biggest classic car show that happens on a regular basis in the States. It's something like 3,000 cars show up first Sunday of every month. And it's free. It's really almost uh, non-commercial. You know, you don't have to pay anything to show your car. You don't have to pay anything to look at cars. It's even hard to find like a cup of coffee or a donut or whatever. There's almost nothing for sale there. And anyway, so we show up and we go in teams of three. We have three hosts. So we'll wire the host in the morning. They'll give them a couple cars that they're looking out for. Sometimes they show up. Sometimes these people don't. And they basically just walk around the show, find a car that looks cool to them, and we'll quickly wire the person or, you know, sometimes it's a couple that owns the car. So we'll throw a couple wires on the people. And they'll just talk to them about their car for 15, 20 minutes. They'll walk around. They'll sit in the car, usually turn it on, and then we'll do a quick on-the-fly interview with the owner afterwards and that becomes a segment for the show sometimes they do uh special features on the show as well and we go on location and they'll cut that in with the regular episode we got to go to a uh, winery and drive uh, vintage porsches last summer i think it was and that was fun with the owner of this winery and this porsche aficionado guy so you actually got to drive them yourself I did not get to drive, (laughs) but uh, I got to be in the follow car and uh, we flew drones around and we had all sorts of fun. So yeah, it's a a good gig because you get there at six in the morning, you're done at noon, everyone leaves the car show and there's nothing else to do anymore. And you just kind of get what you can get in a mad frenzy for a couple hours and then they make a show out of it.
0: All right. I was looking at your uh, your IMDb, and you were boom-op on Uncle Drew in 2018, that movie. I was, in fact. Tell us a little bit about that setup.
1: So I really feel for those guys. Uh, Uncle Drew, if you haven't seen it, is a story about a septuagenarian basketball player. He's supposed to be in his 70s, I guess. And it was Kyrie Irving. So at least he's in his 20s, I think but uh, they had heavy prosthetic latex, you know, makeup on. These guys had to wear extra padding. They had to wear jogging suits. And we filmed it in the middle of the summer in Atlanta on a basketball court that they made themselves out of a parking lot. And as soon as we got to the uh, basketball court, the first C-stand we put down, it sunk into the basketball court like three inches so uh, they really had a challenge on their hands as far as the actors just dealing with the physical challenges of just being out there in the heat. And us, too.
0: And Shaquille O'Neal was on that one, too, right?
1: Uh, Shaq was on that, yeah. And uh, a few other basketball players who are now retired in their 40s. And I thought these guys were just going to fall out. I mean, they were pull, you know playing basketball full on. In all that makeup and latex and, uh, you know, 70s jogging suits, velour jogging suits. And, uh, you yeah, know, it was nuts. Uh, it was a challenge for Boom. It was a lot of open sun, a lot of fighting shadows. You know, we could wire everybody, but it was so sweaty. The wires were falling off all the time. Uh, we did a lot of Second Boom too. It was a fun show, actually. It was a lot of fun to work on. Shaq's just a real joker. He's just great to be around. He's always cracking everybody up. But uh, yeah, physically, that was a rough show, just being outside in the, in the heat. You know, it just got miserable.
0: When it comes to wiring up talent, what expendables do you like to use?
1: Um, like I said, I don't do a lot of utility work at all. I really try to avoid it because it's just too much stuff to deal with. Um, when I wire people myself, for doing corporate work or, uh, you know, EPK stuff, that kind of stuff. It's usually kind of on the fly. I don't get a lot of time to set up some sort of intricate rig. I cut a bunion cushion in half and stick it on there. I've got a couple of rubber mounts. You know, I've got the same stuff anybody else has, over covers and stickies and all that kind of stuff, top stick, super stick. So I kind of mix it up. But uh, for the most part, the stuff I'm doing is literally just sticking a wire on somebody and hoping it sounds pretty good. But, uh, you know, the utilities out there I know have, you know, way better skills at doing that than I do. And that's why I kind of leave that job to them.
0: All right. Now, you also do some freelancing, as you mentioned earlier, for Turner Classic Movies as an A1. So first tell the listeners what an A1 does and then talk a little bit about what you do on the show.
1: I'll give you the history. I did one free day as a boom operator on uh, some YouTube-based scripted thing just because I wanted to work with this mixer. And I think it's probably the only free day maybe I've ever done. It's certainly the only free day I've ever done in Atlanta. I just don't see a reason to do it. But uh, anyway, I did this one free day, and the DP on that recommended me to work at Turner as an A1 I don't know why. I only worked with the guy one day, and it was like a year later that he recommended me. I didn't know who he was, but uh, I know now. Anyway, so I got the call from Turner and went in there, and they trained me on how to run the uh, board. I knew how to run the board, but uh, just how to run the show over there for the uh, Turner Classic Movie Channel. So I've been an A1 there for going on four years, I think. So as an A1, I'm running a uh, QL1 board, and we've got a nice new rig of Sure Axiom Wireless and Wizicom IFBs. Uh, The vast majority is literally just one lob on the host and running one fader on the QL1. The QL1's really overkill for us. Just recording the hosted intros and the outros for the classic movies on Turner Classic Movie Channel. So he walks out and he says... Hey, we're gonna see Jaws today, and this is the year it was shot, and you know, this is where they shot it, and gives it a little spiel for about a minute and a half. And uh, they do that at the end of the movie, too. And we do about 300 of those a week. So it's like a little factory, they just crank them out, and every intro they do on the channel is unique. So they only really do it once, and if they show the movie again next week, you record another intro. So uh, it's been a good little gig because it's just recurring work. I've been uh, doing at least a week and sometimes up to two weeks every month. So it really takes kind of the pressure off of how am I going to pay my bills this month, that kind of stuff that freelancers deal with. And it's still a freelance position. I mean, it could go away at any time, but thankfully it's been pretty steady. So that's my gig over there as an A1. And uh, we occasionally will do some hosted stuff, where they'll have a guest. Sometimes I'll have a couple guests. We've had Robert Wagner there. We've had the film critic uh, Leonard Maltin recently. So sometimes you'll have to do a couple of's. and for that we'll also put up a couple booms and uh, run maybe you know four channels of audio. But that's about as complicated as it gets there. So it's a pretty good gig.
0: Nice. Well, tell us a little bit about the Facebook group, Atlanta Utility and Boom. You're the admin?
1: Uh, yeah, that was my brilliant idea when <laughs> I moved out to Atlanta in 2014. Uh, I saw there was a group for mixers, so I said, I'll make a group for boom operators and utilities. And I think there's 450 people on there now. So it's just a great networking opportunity. If I've got an extra job I can't do, Goes up on there, you know, other people will do the same. I get a lot of work off my own Facebook page. And uh, it's really something I don't put a lot of thought into. I don't promote it. I don't spend any time really doing anything to keep it going, but it just kind of keeps going on its own. It's been a great thing to have, it's been real helpful. And as a result, I probably know at least a couple hundred sound people, you know, on a first name basis here in Atlanta. So if anything comes along, you know, I've got a long list of people I can call to refer jobs to. And it works the other way, too. So you get quite a few calls just from being out there on uh, social media and uh, staying present and reminding people that uh, you're still around. I had a slow month, actually, and the boom gig I got uh, last week. So I posted and said, hey, things are slow. If you got anything, let me know. And uh, actually a few people reached out and said, I've got a day here, got a day there. I've got this thing I can't do. So I try not to, you know, abuse it. But uh, yeah, it works pretty well if you just let people know, hey, you're available. Let me know what you got.
0: Yeah, I saw something the other day. It was like uh, somebody, I guess, contacted you and they were looking for a replacement for, I think it was a boom up. You threw it out there and then all these people say, I'm available, I'm available. So I thought that's that's great. What a great uh, resource for people.
1: Yeah, it's been, I'd say, mostly positive. I think you probably did too. You know, you worked in this industry before social media, where it was really just word of mouth and people calling you on the phone, leaving messages on your answering machine, that kind of stuff. So social media has really changed the landscape. But there's the dark side too, where people will throw you under the bus over rates and that kind of stuff. So you gotta kind of be careful to avoid those pitfalls.
0: All right. Now I was looking back uh, at your your work history, and you actually were a school teacher in a former life. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I lived in L.A. and I worked uh, as a music recording engineer. I've got a degree from Berklee College of Music in Boston. So I went out to L.A. to make my fame and fortune, and ended up being a studio runner, a gopher. And the first project I was on was Michael Jackson's Dangerous record, so I went out and got the uh, filet of fish sandwiches, and uh, you know filled the gas tank of his Blazer up at the gas station with uh, Michael Jackson's credit card, and nobody even batted an eye back then. They're just like, okay, here you go. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I moved into music recording worked as a freelance uh, audio engineer for a couple of years. And then I just got tired of, you know, heavy metal bands till four in the morning and uh, just the repetition and the incredibly loud music levels you'd be, uh, you know, dealing with on a regular basis, coming out of those speakers. So uh, I saw an ad for a production assistant on a feature that was starting. And I jumped into that and immediately started to bug the production sound mixer and said, what's that? How do you do this? How do you turn the Nagra on? And pretty soon after, I was booming for a mixer out there. And then uh, just kind of rolled into sound mixing since I had already been working as a sound engineer anyway. And back then in the good old days, you could get your Nagra and your four-pot uh, Sela mixer and a 416 or whatever. And you were good to go. You had the same thing everybody else had. You know, if you had a couple of wires, you were really ahead of the game. And just rolled into it from that. Anyway, I did production sound for about five years. Mixed, I don't know, 40 independent features in L.A. Back then was the heyday of indie film on film. So at least they would shoot on uh, 16, sometimes 35. And then they kind of had that point right around 1999 maybe? Where the Canon XL1 came out, and all of a sudden, all the film disappeared. And the budgets you know, just collapsed, and you just couldn't get any money. Not even some money, but really nothing. Very little money out there for mixing uh, low-budget features anymore. So I started to look around. I actually got a job in IT with a friend of mine who was starting a company. Did that for seven years. I was bored. <laughs> Went back to school got my teaching degree. This was all in LA and went back to IT and thought, why do I have this teaching degree? And I saw an ad for uh, schools in North Carolina that were looking for elementary school teachers. So I applied, got the gig, moved to North Carolina, and I spent six years there as a fifth grade teacher. And uh, that is a job that you are either cut out for or it'll just beat you up. And uh, I was not one of the people that was cut out for it. <laughs> it never got any easier. And it wasn't the teaching. It wasn't even the kids on an individual basis. It was just the group dynamic and the behavior of a group of kids in a classroom. And just trying to steer them in the right direction. It was just not something I was cut out for. I enjoyed the teaching. I taught science. That was all fun. But I certainly didn't enjoy, you know, all the consequences you'd have to give out and all the drama and the fights and uh, sitting in the principal's office and, you know, all that stuff you have to do with kids who just would rather do anything other than learn. And you just get a bunch of those kids and it just, you know, makes for a tough year. So as I was teaching, Atlanta was kind of on the rise and uh, kept an eye on that. And I came out in uh, I'm trying to remember what year. I think it was fourteen. And uh, they have the Mixer Mixer out here, where all the mixers get together and hang out, and they do product demos, and uh, they have a barbecue. And uh, I kind of knew a couple people who had been LA people and had moved out here. And uh, once I did that, I thought, all right, well, production sound wasn't so bad. So <laughs> came out and got back into it.
0: Mm. Well, out of all the projects you boomed in the past, what was like the most challenging one you worked on?
1: Probably Baywatch was the hardest just because of the multiple cameras. They would do very long takes. I remember we did a 35-minute uh, long take with like the entire cast, eight actors or something around a uh, campfire on the beach at night. And, you know, in the good old days of film, eventually they would run out. The mag would only go for so long. And uh, they'd have to cut. But, of course, these days they can go until the card runs out. So they can get a good 30, 40 minutes or whatever. And, you know, so this director would, at least on a couple occasions, just keep the thing going. So uh, I did. I held the poll up for almost, you know, at least close to a half hour on one of these shots. And the only motivation in your mind is thinking, I don't want to end up on entertainment tonight. I don't want to be the guy that drops the boom on the rock. So uh, you just do what you do to get through it. But uh, it was a challenging show. Uh, there was a lot of friction with the camera department. I'm sure they were under pressure. They were working fast. They were throwing cameras here, there, wherever. It's always that nightmare where you're about to roll. And out the corner of your eye, you see they've thrown you know a D camera. Somewhere that totally messes up whatever your plan was for that scene. And you just don't happen to have a plan B. You know, and now you're screwed. Like, oh, I can't stand here. Yeah, so that, that, was a, that was a tough shoot for sure.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about what was your worst on-set experience?
1: Actually, uh, when I was booming once, I worked with a mixer who actually was homeless. And he lived out of an Alfa Romeo convertible. <laughs> this was back in L.A., and he used to rent sound gear. I think it was a former camera guy, but he knew enough to know how to run the Nagra. Anyway, so we did a whole day, and uh, everything sounded fine to me as a boom up. And then he went and played back, and he had nothing recorded. Oh, man. So the rental machine they had just hadn't recorded anything. And I learned a good lesson to always play back. Uh, the Nagra, it was easy because you could always listen to the playback. Uh, from the you know the playhead as you were recording so and you get a delay <laughs> at least you could verify something was on there so that was pretty miserable to be on the department to have to say hey we didn't record any sound all day even though it wasn't my fault so that was pretty miserable the other the other bad day i can think of uh, i was a pa on a show and the tank underneath the honey wagon fell off of <laughs> Of the trailer and spilled all the contents all over the ground, oh. and the the uh, ad or someone you know came over and said, "Let's get some PAs to clean that up." Yeah, I don't think so, buddy. No, not for seventy-five dollars a day or whatever it was. For some of our
0: listeners that don't know what the honey wagon is, tell us about that.
1: Ah, the honey wagon. Uh, the honey wagon is the uh, mobile trailer that contains the bathrooms. It's always good to kind of locate the honey wagon when you start your day because you don't want to be searching around for it when you have like 30 seconds to go run out and take a break during a shot or something. That's what it is. As a matter of fact, I got a good honey wagon. I got a couple good honey wagon stories. So my first good honey wagon story is I was doing Boom on a feature starring Pam Anderson in the 90s, a sci-fi feature. Called Naked Souls. I'm sure it's one of your favorites. We had Pam wired and she went off to the honey wagon and never came back. And we're about ready to roll. Cameras are set up. Where's Pam? Where's Pam? So you never want to turn up the mic when someone's in the honey wagon, especially if it's Pam Anderson, like you don't want to ruin the fantasy, you know, but uh, in that instance, we had to do it. So we turned up the mic and she was banging on the door and yelling, help, 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 help. So she was, she was locked in the bathroom. So we, we got to extract her from there. You saved her. We did. She actually was very nice. I enjoyed working with her. What's my other Honeywagon story? Oh, Oprah. I did a, I boomed a feature with Oprah for HBO a couple of years ago. And uh, she was great to work with too. She's pretty much just how you expect her to be. And she said, Rob, where's, where's the Honeywagon? I said, oh, Oprah, it's like a long ways down the road there. We're out in this little country house and a dirt road. It really was pretty far away. So she said, okay, just keep guard. And she went and, you know, peed behind the house. <laughs> so here I am keeping guard for the richest woman in the world who's going to pee behind a house. That's, that's the kind of stuff you get up to in the film industry.
0: That's a good one. Well, what's your all-time favorite production you've worked on?
1: I really do enjoy Caffeine and Octane because I'm a car guy. I mean, that's certainly my current favorite. I just enjoy hanging out and checking out the cars and running around with the hosts. And uh, that's really kind of a cool show. Everybody's real nice on that show. Um, Probably some of the indie features I did in the 90s, some of those were really a lot of fun. Probably the best one I did was a feature called Running Time, which was really cool. It was a black and white like crime noir, bank robbery movie. And they shot it like Hitchcock's rope. So we did 10, seven, eight minute scenes. And that was the entire movie. So we probably shot it in a week, a week and a half. And each day we were only doing one seven minute scene. And then they hit all the cuts. So it all looked like one continuous piece. So we would rehearse a bunch of times, probably up to lunch. And then they would do four or five of them. When that was your day, but uh, that actually came out really well. It was a big challenge for the boom operator. It was a challenge for me running around with a Nagra. We were going from uh, a jail set, you know, in the same shot to the back of a moving panel van, then out from the panel van into a bank, and you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, in in just one continuous motion. Matter of fact, with only two inputs on the Nagra. I figured out a way to do it where I would plant mics on some of the sets and hide the XLRs and literally be pulling out XLRs as I showed up to these locations and plugging in these plant mics, potting it down, potting it back up, and then you know ripping it out so we could move to some other set or whatever. So that was kind of the best way I could figure out how to do that show. And I just had a really good boom operator. Uh, James Ridgely boomed it. And he's a mixer in L.A. now. And he just really uh, got out there and did it. And it was all steady cam again, in the summer, you know, just very hot, you know, miserable conditions. But uh, we got it done.
0: It sounds like you had some good planning there to be able to have all those XLRs already laid out and secured.
1: Yeah, I had no idea how to do it. It was just what I figured out on the day. I used uh, PZMs a lot back then. Because nobody knew what a PZM looked like. You could leave it sitting on a desk. It just looked like part of the phone or whatever. And uh, I had a couple electrolobs too back then. And we would just hide stuff, plant stuff, whatever. But yeah, you would just have to pick whatever two inputs were the most important. One was the boom, obviously. And then uh, just kind of go from there. So we went, you know, we'd go from the interior to the inside of the moving van. So I'd have a plant in, in the van you know, in front of the driver and leave the cord there and just unplug and plug that thing in, and we would just keep rolling.
0: Well, in, in all those years, have you ever forgotten any gear when you're on your way to set?
1: That is always a big nightmare of the freelance uh, production sound recorder, especially if you're going to somewhere, like I went to Macon for a dock, uh, it was this week, Monday, last Monday, It's like a two-hour drive, and you got to be there at 7 in the morning. And, you know, your kit is always changing. I mean, you have a basic set of gear that you use, you know, most of the time. But every once in a while, you've got to change it up. You know, you bring this, you bring that. Sometimes I bring a cart. Sometimes I think I'm just going to work out of a backpack. So things have to be transferred into different boxes and that kind of stuff. Um, I'll make a kind of a mental note of how many boxes or containers I have. And I'll sit there and run through it one, two, three, four, five, just to make sure I don't leave something at home that has a bunch of stuff in it. Thankfully, I'm pretty organized, and uh, I don't make a list or anything, but I seem to remember to bring everything. Can't think of a time when I showed up somewhere and I just didn't have what I needed. I mean, one time I showed up without a backup, and this was way back in the days of the Nagra, and the Nagra didn't work, and we were way down in Orange County. And I just remember a super pissed off producer. This is probably my worst day. As far, this is the story I should have told for my worst day of production sound. I had another Nagra, but of course it was at home. So we had a you know, hustle back up the freeway to get my backup recorder. And it was the day of the North Hollywood shootout when they had those bank robbers with automatic weapons you know, shooting all over the place. I don't remember when this was, mid-90s. So I got back home, and we lived near North Hollywood. So my wife was hiding in the closet because she was convinced the bank robbers were coming to get her. I'm like, get out of the closet. I got to go in there and get my Nagra. So it was pretty ridiculous.
0: Oh, man. Well, if you could like go back and do it all over again, what would you do different now?
1: Um, I really have gone back and done it all over again. <laughs> I did this career for about five years as a boom-op and a production sound mixer in L.A. And then I didn't do it for about a decade when I was doing IT and working as a teacher. And I did go back and do it again. I had to pretty much go back and buy everything again. I sold all my gear around the year 2000 to one of my boom operators. so I literally didn't have a shotgun mic i mean i didn't have anything so I, I did have to go back and just build up an entire kit again and uh, just start from scratch i could always be better at networking reaching out to people listening to their names when they actually tell you their name which is a bad habit of mine you know they'll tell me who they are and i'll immediately forget who it is you know i think some people are better at that than others uh, pam anderson was good at that i worked with her on one show. And then probably a year and a half later, I worked with her again. And she said, "Uh, hey, Rob, how you doing? I mean, she must have met, you know, a thousand crew members between that time. But uh, somehow she was good at just remembering who you were and, you know, making you feel comfortable.
0: You have seen a lot of significant changes over the years. But what were some of the big ones that changed since you've since you started in the business?
1: Well, I missed the whole transition from analog to digital Uh, when I started I had a mono Nagra 4.2, and it was one track. You had a four pot mixer. What you gave them was what they used. There was no ISOs, there was no alternate for them. They just had to use whatever you gave them. You know, the mix was the mix, and that was it. Maybe they could EQ or obviously edit, but uh, that was about all. So you really concentrated on having a nice sounding mix. If you had wires, I mean, you tried to make it sound as natural as possible, balance the level of the boom with the wires, you know, EQ as you could, etc. So you really were a mixer back then. I mean, most people today will say you're just a dedicated track layer. You know, you're just a recordist now. Because now that you have the ISOs, they have the freedom of doing whatever they want with the mix. If they don't like a plant or whatever, they can just cut it out and they never use it. So uh, I went from the analog era, and I was glad I did. I mean, Nagras were great machines to work on. 12 D-cell batteries. You got three days out of them. They sounded great. They were workhorses. They literally almost never broke unless some crazy thing happened. I electrocuted my Nagra once. (laughs) I, I plugged into a house. And the boom operator laid the boom down and it made contact with something that was hooked up to the grounding wires in the house and smoke came out of it. And I fried all the boards in it and thankfully it was insured. And back then we had a guy who could fix that stuff. So he turned it around a week later. I had a Nogger with all new guts in it. But uh, So I went from the analog years and, and right when I got out the first time, We had just started to use the Fosdec stat machines, the PD-4s, whatever, PD-6. I had a gig. This was probably one of my favorite gigs. I worked on uh, Power Rangers, second unit, as a mixer. And I recorded the Japanese stunt people who were wearing masks. So they couldn't speak English. You couldn't see their face. So there was nothing that needed to be synced. They really weren't saying anything. They just wanted someone out there to get the grunts and the feet shuffling and whatever. So uh, it was really a low-pressure gig. I think that was one of the first ones I did on DAT. And I remember, because we were on the desert once, and I opened the lid. It was like a VCR. The lid popped up or whatever, and you had to pull the tape out of there. And a big gust of wind came, and all this sand went inside the DAT machine. I'm like, yep, that's it for the day. So let's pull out the Nagra. But uh, yeah, so I got there right at the beginning when we went digital, when we started to record. I mean, it wasn't even files. it was We were still recording on tape, but it was on DAT. And then the whole middle of my career, I did something else. And then I came back, and it was all file-based recorders. And, uh, you know, there's certainly a thousand advantages to file-based recording and recording ISOs, et cetera but it's it's not the same. You know, you're not mixing. The mix is nice to have, but it's not critical. And they're going to take the tracks and do whatever they want with them now. So, uh, ev- even as a boom operator, a lot of times you're super critical about trying to make sure you're on axis. And hey, the person turned this way and I didn't catch it, you know, I didn't know they were going to do it or whatever. And then you think, well, everybody's wired now it's going to another track. So they're going to be fine. They're going to have it, you know.
0: Well, that is true. Well, if some of our listeners wanted to get into production sound, what kind of uh, advice would you give them?
1: I'm sure a lot of people would say, don't. <laughs> you know, it's a race to the bottom. It's, you know, it's all coming to an end in the next couple of years, whatever. Yeah, that might be true. But <laughs> production sound is a thing, I think. If it's your thing, then it's your thing. You know, you're going to want to do it. You're into sound recording. Most production sound mixers are musicians of some sort. I am as well. Or they have some experience with live music, recording, you know, running the board at their church or that kind of thing. My background actually was in radio. I built my high school radio station. We got a grant from the cable company when they came into town. And I got to spend 10 grand and buy a console and turntables, cart machines back then, which were the eight track machines that they used to play back the records on. You would dub a 45 onto this thing called a cart, which was basically like an eight track shell, but with one song, just had three, four minutes of tape in it. And then they would loop around constantly. And uh, so I got to figure out how all that stuff worked and run my high school radio station for a couple of years. And that's how I got into it. Yeah, today, you know, the bar to entry in a lot of ways is a lot lower. And you can go out and buy a Zoom. And you can buy a couple G3s or whatever. And, uh, you know, you're on your way. The challenge comes in interfacing with all the other production sound recorders out there. And people get real testy about the rates. And you go out there and undercut people. You're going to hear about it on social media. It becomes a whole thing. So a lot of it is just kind of protecting your brand, keeping yourself out of those situations where you end up on a Facebook post with like thirty-seven different comments underneath it saying what a jerk you are because you, you went out and did a job and you know for a hundred dollars less than some other guy was gonna do it for. And maybe you didn't even know what they offered that guy. So those those are the things you gotta watch out for. I don't even know that you can give anyone advice. I mean, people who do this just are into this stuff. They enjoy the gear. They enjoy being on set. You know, and they're just going to go out there and and give it a try.
0: Well, Rob, as we kind of wrap things up, uh, what's the best way for people to connect with you online?
1: Probably Facebook. That's kind of my side hustle. I'm there all the time. We never close. And uh, the Facebook page is Atlanta Utility and Boom. So if you're interested in knowing about the productions happening in Atlanta, just general production sound stuff, gear talk, all that kind of stuff, it all shows up on there at some point. And uh, that's a good thing to check out. You don't have to live in Atlanta even. I'll let you in if you send a request. Other than that, I'm out here doing it like everybody else. All
0: right. Well, I want to say thanks to Rob Disner for being on the show.
1: Well, you're very welcome. It was a
0: pleasure. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcasts, and for Android users, check out Google Podcasts. Also, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.